Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guests on this episode are Jay Davis and Jason Pananos. Jay and Jason acquired Vector Disease Control, which provides vector-borne disease prevention and lake management services in 2011. About four years after acquisition, they realized serial acquisitions of complementary companies could be a powerful growth lever. And 14 acquisitions later, they sold the company in 2017 for a very successful outcome. Following the sale, they founded the Nashton Company, where they've been mainstay search investors and the last few years holding company investors. They are also co-founders of Compounding Labs, a partnership between Jay and Jason, Kent Weaver, and Will Thorndike to invest in long-term holding companies. Our conversation covers their investing in holding companies, how they approached serial acquisition at Vector, and how they advise other searchers in the strategy, sources of capital and deal pacing, and building deal teams and when to start that process within your serial acquisition or holding company cycle. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. What should you budget for a quality of earnings report? Typically, the budget for a small business acquisition ranges anywhere as, as low as 10000 for a light QOV, quality of earnings analysis, to as high as typically about 25000 or so in the mid-20s. And of course, this depends on the complexity of the, the business itself, just the quality and the conditions of the books. But generally speaking, that range is a pretty good estimate. And the way that we help kind of manage that cost and, and managing the cost of the quality of earnings is especially important in this space. And primarily, there is a lot of uncertainties around uh, whether the deal is viable and it's going to go to the finish line. And so the, the way we uh, manage the cost is, as I mentioned, in the phase one and phase two approach allows at least to take on certain risk in the early stage of the process. So if the deal doesn't work out, doesn't, doesn't make sense, and it, then it has to terminate then we're looking at you know, a cost that's basically a fraction of the total total cost. So it makes that process a little bit more manageable. Awesome. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I'd love to start by kind of talking about Vector in terms of its fit for serial acquisition strategies. I'm Obviously, there were a lot of things within that business that worked really well for a serial acquisition strategy, but there's, I have, there's probably some things also that were less than ideal. If you look at Vector as a kind of play for acquisitions, how did it fit and not fit in kind of that broader strategy? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I mean, we didn't really set out to do a, a serial acquisition strategy when we first, you know, we, we got started in a traditional search fund. We, we bought a company that did municipal mosquito control programs for mostly cities and counties and fairly spread out uh, based in Little Rock, Arkansas, but we were spread out across the country when we first bought the business in 2011. And, you know, I think follow-on acquisition was maybe one bullet point in our 60-page memo to investors. So, you know, we thought that could be an opportunity, but it's not something we really set out to do. And, you know, we had initially thought that lake and pond management could eventually be a fit with mosquito control. And it really wasn't until two years into running Vector towards the end of 2012 that we had a you know, live actionable add-on opportunity in the lake and pond management business that we and the board at the time felt like would be a good fit with with VDCI. And it was fairly opportunistic. I mean, at the time, we thought it was a fit. It got us over $2 million in EBITDA. And, you know, it was a great price. It was a business we had got to follow for two or three years. 
And that went well. So then, you know, a year later, we did another add on. And then was, we were probably four years in when we realized, wow, there might be a few more opportunities in this industry than we thought. And we could really make this, you know, an add on acquisition story and strategy. And, you know, I'd say that the downside to those industries was just the total like addressable market size wasn't massive, but there was enough players in there where we felt like we could we could certainly do this for five or ten years and be the be the number one player in these markets. And we had really high quality revenue. There was reasonable pricing in the market since there weren't a lot of consolidators. We were providing a good exit for for business owners that really hadn't you know, hadn't existed before we started to do that. So, you know, those things all boded pretty well for that working for us for for an add-on acquisition strategy. But it's not like it had a business where you could put two things together and take out a lot of cost. And in many situations, we were actually adding, you know, we were trying to grow the businesses. We were keeping all the teams and adding to that to continue to grow the businesses. And they were, we were essentially adding new markets. So, you know, we were expanding geographically through acquisition. So it's not like there was a lot of redundancy or synergy, but I think we we were able to generate cash flow and build momentum in the business through cash flow and incremental debt without having to deploy really any new equity after the first deal. So if you do that, if you do that long enough, you, know, you don't need a lot of synergies to you know build a great business. So that's kind of how it worked for us. Since you didn't acquire the business with the intention of rolling up other businesses immediately, what actions either you know intentionally or unintentionally in the first four years kind of prepared you for other acquisitions down the road once you got into the business and understood it better? I'm not sure how intentional they were, Alex, to be honest. As Jason mentioned, the, the first quote-unquote tuck-in we did was really opportunistic and ultimately was a way for us to expand our addressable market. That was the rationale. The mosquito market that we you know, were in originally was a great business and a great industry for a lot of reasons, but it was very small. And so the Pond and Lake acquisition was a way for us to expand our addressable market. That's simple. And even at that point, we did not have a plan to then go on and do several more acquisitions. It happened organically even from there uh, for the next few years, I would say, where that, after that first one, its local competitor actually reached out to us and said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, hey, I, I wanted to buy that business, didn't work out, but I think these businesses are better together. Do you want to have that discussion? And we said, sure. That then happened again. And I think it wasn't until that point where we thought, well, you know, maybe maybe there's an opportunity. We're just slow, I guess, is probably the takeaway. But it was, all, it was really after that third one where we thought, okay, well, maybe there's an opportunity. And I, and I would say what we did from, from that point of kind of really realizing that, you know, maybe we can buy a lot of these and putting ourselves in a position to execute on that more effectively, I would say a couple of things. One is we, we actually hit the pause button a little bit. We made one more acquisition and it was a business that was a very well-run business and really an industry leader. And they had a very well-developed sort of service delivery model and field operations model. And when we did that acquisition, we took that as the opportunity to, to hit the pause button. We did some rebranding work and really intense integration work from a process standpoint. And that then put us in a position to go faster. And you know that was roughly year three and a half or four and then we had another two or three years to step on the gas pedal a little bit, quote unquote. And I'll just add to Alex, I think in the, you know, one thing we, we had throughout really our whole journey, which is really critical to, to the consolidation strategy, we had a really strong CFO who was with us from the beginning and being able to really integrate financials, accounting, back office immediately with almost every acquisition was really important. And we had that from the beginning. And, you know, we can get into advice we give to other consolidators, but like having a really strong finance function early is really important. And we were lucky to have that from the beginning. And then to Jay's point, in terms of when we started to move fast, you know, in the early days, we could do one or two deals a year with, you know, Jay and I being on the ground, you know, helping to drive the acquisition, make those key decisions. 
but we couldn't really do three, four, or five deals a year until our team was versed in that, and the team had multiple reps of acquisitions and making some mistakes and being on the ground to know, you know, the tone, you know, things to say and not to say when you're when you're on site in the in the early days and. Once our team, you know, both the functional, you know, the functional leads in both the companies, but even our operations managers and leaders in the field, you know, until all those people had had experience with the acquisition process, we really couldn't move that fast because there's only so much Jay and I could do. And really having a team who where M&A was in the DNA, we could move a little bit faster. And, you know, we were lucky to have advisors and mentors to follow to, you know, to help us get there. But that was a key tenant for us. And I think a key sort of a key success factor we see now when we're investors in consolidations. Yeah. When you think of kind of preparing your team for uh, multiple acquisitions, both your internal team, your executive team, and then advisors, service providers, lenders, perhaps, what are some of the key roles in each of those buckets that need to be in, a, in really top shape before you acquire other companies? I mean, the first one is the finance organization, and I see Jason smiling because we're we're pretty you know, focused on that. We were very lucky we had a great CFO, but the minute that you get you know financial reporting and the ability to close books and report on performance, the minute you lose that, I think these strategies can fall apart very quickly. And it's it's important not only so that you understand how your own investment decisions are doing. But you have this whole sort of cash management, capital structure question happening in the background, and you can't get that right unless you can report correctly. And so finance is the, the first one, I would say. There's a lot of other things to it, but I would, I think, next go to HR, and it's maybe not even like a significant HR team necessarily, but it's getting, you're getting the HR component of integration right, and benefits is, I think, the biggest example Benefits are really, really important to people, understandably. And we found that that was, you know, that's the first question you get, you know, pay sort of job role, boss, kind of the same kind of question and benefits. And so being able to communicate clearly our benefits program, how it's different, where it's better, where there might be shortfall. We actually, in a lot of cases, took steps to top people up very purposefully to sort of make them whole if if there were cases where our benefits weren't as good that was less common but it certainly happened and we think that was the right the right thing to do and then the last thing alex i'm really glad you mentioned service providers because i think it's absolutely critical you can't do a lot of MA if you don't have great partners doing it with you and whether it's a qv provider obviously your attorney lenders are very important we treated those people and still to today as our business partners. They were part of our team. Yeah, we, we we were their customer, but that's not how we thought about it, honestly. They were they were our partner and they might as well have been working in our company with us. And and I think when they interacted with sellers or parties on the other side, that came across and I just think made us I'd like to think anyway, made us an attractive counterparty just based on the people who we had representing us in those various ways. Well said, Jay. Now, I'll add sellers to that too. So, you know, we we didn't always get everything right, but our goal was every seller should be a reference for another seller. And that meant there'd be things that, you know, maybe post-close, based on your document, you could go back and take something out of, take something out of escrow or have a negotiation. But... Generally, our view was transact with good people, buy great companies with great people, and have those folks be references for for other sellers. And you know, we would we would literally give a potential business owner our list of deals and owners and phone numbers, and say, "Hey, call them, ask them anything, ask them the good and the bad." And we were always comfortable with that. And a lot of our best deals came from friends of other business owners who you know had, had a good experience and. That was really important to us as well. And having that reputation to this day is important to us. Yeah, that reputation piece is, is, is definitely huge. By the by, like the last handful of acquisitions before selling Vector, how and what were some of, some of the best practices you developed through you know, a dozen or so acquisitions up to that point in terms of 
how you communicate with sellers. Um, you just you, you mentioned already working with partners and treating them like partners with your service providers. But um, what are some other kind of practices you established by the end of, of your time with Vector? Yeah, I think it's kind of everything we talked about. First of all, like never say nothing's going to change when you're there on the first day meeting the team and, and talking to folks. I think in the early days, you have the tendency to want to say that, you know, to make people feel comfortable. The reality is things are going to change, but, you know, it's important to us to respect the the culture and the processes that people had. And, you know, there's certain things that you could leave alone and certain things that certainly as we got bigger and you had systems that were non-negotiables that you had to adopt. So, you know, we tried to be transparent and, and open about that. And you know, I think that was really important in you know, in the early days that we learned to get comfortable with. But, you know, it was really about the team and the the people around us. So, you know, at some point, there was only so much we could do. And we were lucky to have a great, a great team of people and great team of advisors. And most of those people are still with the company today. And they've done really phenomenally, you know, since we since we sold the business. So it was really important. One thing I'm also really curious about is how your individual roles evolved over time. So from that kind of year four, where you haven't acquired a company, another company yet, and you're still running the same one versus now you have a dozen or so acquisitions under your belt. How did each of your individual roles on the team shift? Like your day-to-day responsibilities, types of appointments that were on your calendar, how did those things shift and evolve? And um, was it a pretty gradual shift or did you have to really um, move things in and out fairly quickly as things ramped up? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure we're the perfect examples of what's right to do here. To be honest, the first business we bought was fairly small. I had 34 employees, and so the reality was that Jason and I were both very involved in basically every major decision for at least the first two years. And you know, there was a, a lot of cross pollination even in in the various functions of the business. I think you could argue, and this probably was the case, that that was relatively inefficient. So I would acknowledge that. I do think we got to better decisions, though, because of that. And it set us up well for the next five years. As the business grew, that became more difficult, obviously. And so there was, a, a, I think, a pretty organic evolution in how our roles took shape, both functional, like function-wise, but also business line-wise. So... You know, at the end, we had two service lines, mosquito control and pond and lake management. And so we split responsibilities on that dimension, but then also on a functional dimension because we had you know, finance, HR, sales and marketing were, for lack of a better way to describe it, essentially centralized and then you know worked across both business lines. And then the operations were very focused per service line. So again, as we, as we grew, that became easier to do. And I don't, I can't say, although I wish maybe I could say, but I can't say that we were very, you know, very intentional about it. It it was more of an organic evolution, but I think worked out well. So, and and at the end, I would say it's like how how our calendars changed. Well, you know, the first few acquisitions, we're, we're doing everything, you know, negotiating the, the, the deal, although that never really changed, but sourcing the capital for it showing up on day one to talk to the team and working on integration, talking to the, <laughs> the benefits broker, like you're doing it all. And at the end, it was very much different where we had very, we had a, a great management team by that point and had leaders who could lead that process for each acquisition. And so it became much more of a, you know, deal sourcing, execution, capital structure role in supporting our managers as, as we, diligence to close deals and then integrated them and that was more fun frankly you know it was yeah it just was more fun and felt more scalable and you know a lot of smart people working hard around the table to to make make it happen and that was really enjoyable yeah i'd say the pattern and i see this among other first-time ceos but you know from a personal perspective i i describe it as like in the early stages you know, a lot of individual contribution. It's a small company. Like we could go out and make a sale or, or do a bid, you know, directly and have that impact the business. And then, you know, over time, we, as we grew as leaders, we get better at delegating and, 
you know, giving more of that responsibility out where maybe we didn't do our team the best of favors in the early days by, you know, just trying to do stuff on our own. But then eventually, you know, the delegation only gets you so far and then you have to be a leader and build culture and you're, you're only as good as the team you have and the processes that you have in place. And I think I'd say, you know, we've seen others do that better than we did. I think we were really good in the capital allocation front. I think we were, we got to a point where we had, you know, great teams and great process in place. And frankly, a lot of that was driven by some of the leaders in our business and, you know, owners who sold their companies to us and stayed on and drove a lot of that. So we were lucky to have really, really good people around us. As Jay mentioned, as you get bigger, like that's, that's the only way you can build value in the company. And we evolved through that over seven years. And I'd say that's a consistent pattern that we see in, in first-time CEOs is making that transition from a contributor to a manager to a leader. Yeah, that's a big transition. When you've seen, as you've kind of studied other serial acquirers and entrepreneurs take similar paths, have you noticed that folks have an easier or more difficult time, whether it's a, a single entrepreneur versus two partners? I don't think so. I mean, I think when there's two, in theory, you know, there's there's just more capacity. You know, a lot of times the value you can create in these businesses, whether it's a consolidation strategy or, or not, minutes, hours, and days spent working on the business, you know, are more compound to major value creation than time working in the business. So when there's two partners that are buying a company, there's just more time to be spent on the business. So I think to some extent that's true, but we've seen solo entrepreneurs be just as successful and maybe they have to build the team around them a little bit faster than if there's a pair uh, entrepreneur, but I think you can be successful as a solo entrepreneur or, you know, or a pair doing a consolidation strategy, but it's all about the infrastructure that you can build. It's not at least what we've seen now that we've studied a lot of these, invested in a lot of these, like you're going to build a consolidation over 10 or 15 years, like the, you know, the EBITDA you build in years one through five is less important than you know, having the right team and people and machine in place to both do acquisitions and integrate and build the platform as you move. So whether you're solo or pair, I think team building is probably the most important thing. Yeah, outside of team building, when you talk about investments being made in those first couple of years that pay off down the road, what other types of investments tend to be really effective and have high returns for entrepreneurs to focus on those early years? Yeah, I would say just there's a lot of process stuff. I mean, I'm not sure this is all that different than some of it's not specific to consolidation strategy necessarily, you know, but a lot of the businesses that we invest in, as you know, Alex, you know, they're there's a process of professionalization that happens, you know, I think mainly in the finance function, but certainly in the sales and marketing function. And so those are two, you know, two that come to mind. But when you're, I think it is exacerbated, I guess, when you're doing a serial acquisition strategy, because you're adding employees and significant amounts of revenue and EBITDA in one chunk. And on top of it, you know, you've done that in a way that's not, you know, by definition, it's not organic. And so you can't just, it's not joining automatically your own process. So you know, having the, the team, as Jason mentioned, and, and the process pretty defined so that you can integrate into that, I think is important. And I, th- I want to pick on, or, or maybe slightly disagree with Jason, which is very rare. And I think maybe he would rephrase what he said, but Building EBITDA early is very important. It's just that you have to do that in conjunction with having the right team in place to then put you in a position to scale. So, so there's there's definitely a balance. Yeah, no offense taken there. Yeah, and I would say we mentioned it, but investment in third-party advisors and obviously you're spending money, but it's time, you know, you're putting time into those relationships. So you have people you can depend on and can help you move faster. I think that's really important. and in terms of things that aren't people, but, you know, having some process, having metrics, you know, we, one of our board members, a gentleman named John O'Connell, who's been a mentor to us and ran a fairly large consolidation himself. He, he has, he defines, you know, this thing calls it enterprise control, but you basically have, you know, kind of agreed upon metrics with your team and your investors and board. And, you know, it helps kind of govern your, your pace of acquisition, because if you're, meeting enterprise control, meaning you're getting your financials 
monthly financials done on a regular basis, you're hitting your operational metrics, you essentially have enterprise control and it's okay to move faster. But when those things start slipping, that's a sign to slow down the acquisition engine and you know make sure you can regain that enterprise control and that kind of helps that can help things you know get out of control. So I think having having that type of a process and understanding and, and metrics can all complement you know the team and, and the processes that, that Jay was mentioning. Are there a handful of common mistakes is a strong word, but maybe just misinvestment or misallocations that early entrepreneurs have when in the in the beginning innings of a serial acquisition strategy where maybe they're spending too much time here or less time there where or you commonly come in to explain or walk through different ways that they should be investing their time like what are some common maybe misallocations of time that you see early on when consolidation strategies start out bigger and that, that that we have less experience with that. We generally start in you know the lower end of the lower middle market. I would say, you know, but I I see what happens in you know middle market, you know, private equity investing when they're doing serial consolidations, and yeah, you know, I think a lot of people have a tendency to want to build a corporate team fast and early. And you know, Jason, I just made the point about yeah, you have to have the right team and build it. But I think what we're saying is different than that. You know, in our heads, we're thinking you've got to, you can't get too far behind the, the curve on making sure you have the right leaders in your business. But, but just as intensely, we would say it's very dangerous to get way ahead of the curve. Because I think what, what happens is you, you drag EBITDA so much that you then put yourself in a position where you have to do more acquisitions. You have to go at a faster pace. And I think that is just riskier. And I'm not saying that doesn't work sometimes. I mean, it works a lot, but that's not how we think about serial acquisition strategies. It's it's a more balanced approach, I think, to, to pacing and team building that just has a balance. So, so anyway, so that that was that's what I, that's what came to mind, I guess, is CEOs wanting to build out this really big and expensive corporate overhead that I, I think just create then creates some bad incentives potentially. Is that, do you agree with that, Jason? Or I, I agree with that. And, you know, it's not maybe a time allocation misstep, but I, I think one pattern I see it's, it can be more in the mindset. So it's, it's easy to look at private equity consolidations in certain industries and look at what multiples private equity firms are paying and what they're selling to the next private equity firm for. And, you know, I think that can be a dangerous game because you, you know, you might want to get into an industry and, have this idea of, hey, I'm just going to buy a bunch of stuff at this multiple and we'll be able to sell it for a higher multiple because that's what's going on in the market. Or you're watching what other private equity firms are doing and oh, they're paying nine and 10 times in my industry. Like we're not going to be able to buy anything of, of scale. So we need to either, you know, either stop doing this or maybe raise even more equity to try to compete. And, you know, our experience has been, and the same was true even in our, in our industry, although it was a small, small addressable market compared to some others, but there's always more opportunities out there. So as you're spending more time and building more relationships in the industry, our view is you're going to find exciting deals at reasonable multiples if you're patient over time. So that's probably one mistake we see folks make. And you know, I think in terms of thinking about how much equity is needed for consolidation strategy. So as Jay mentioned, our, our experience is more working, starting at the smaller end of the lower middle market and trying to be a little more equity efficient. So and we've seen this now done in multiple industries where you can get to, you know, we call it flywheel, but essentially the point where you can do additional acquisitions with cash flow and debt or or all debt and and you're levered at a reasonable level. And you know, our view is you don't need more than 10, you know, maybe 20 million max to, you know, build a massive company over a long period of time through acquisition. I think that's just we think about things in that way in a 10 or 15 year time frame and if you're you know focused on just buying a lot of stuff at a low multiple and trying to flip it I think you can get you know caught up in short term incentives or the market could change on you and then and then you're in trouble so we like the idea of thinking about things very patiently and you can you know as we've been saying build that team build it prudently and along the right timeline and not worry about having to sell it in the next 2 years I think the competition in terms of buyers is an interesting topic. 
when you look at, when you work with entrepreneurs to determine, you know, good industries for this strategy, is the presence or absence of other private equity activity in that industry a, a good or bad thing? Like, how do you think through the amount, amount of competition in a certain industry and whether that makes it more or less attractive to you? Yeah, I mean, I think all else equal, it would be nice to not have other buyers. And that is the situation that we found ourselves in at, at Vector in the Pond and Lake management industry. There really weren't other acquirers, and that was a very good dynamic. Having said that, I think there are plenty of industries where there are private equity buyers and strategic buyers, but they're so big and so fragmented that there's our feeling is that you still have tons of runway. And I'll just I'll mention two examples, but I think HVAC, I mean, everybody knows that there are dozens of private equity backed HVAC consolidations. But we are aware of a few where you're still able to find good businesses for reasonable prices. You know, have the prices inched up to you know versus where they were several years, probably, but still very reasonable. I think dental is another example. And I mentioned those two because I think they're so well known to have consolidated, you know, that to have had consolidations ongoing, but dental is just massive. And there's still a lot, I think, of runway at the lower end in particular, where you can buy great practices for reasonable prices. So, so for us to sum, sum that up, like it is not a disqualifier if there's private equity activity in an industry. I do think it makes it it makes it extra important that the industry is large enough and, and fragmented enough. So, th so like that's the, I think the question is that that leads to, but it's certainly not a disqualifier. Totally agree with that. And I, and I think in the context of search funds or other entrepreneurship through acquisition models, it's okay having private equity there because you're essentially selling against that and you are a differentiated option for a seller. And yeah, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't always matter in every scenario, but there's plenty, there's plenty of sellers where the entrepreneurship through acquisition story resonates more than a private equity firm. So I think for, you know, for an entrepreneur that's looking to do a consolidation, there's plenty of owners that, that will really resonate with. So I think it's okay for there to be private equity in those markets. It's, that's an opportunity for, for an entrepreneur. Yeah, there is a there's a media entrepreneur I've I've chatted with a bunch, and one thing he said was the presence of at least in terms of media, the presence of competition in your topic or theme or industry, whatever, is almost a good thing because it primes those advertisers in that space to get used to paying for sponsorships to media businesses. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way to look at competition, and I was I was thinking in terms of this strategy where perhaps kind of, kind of like you said, where private equity is already there, you're selling into it, but also it's, it's kind of an external validator that there's something here in this industry that might be attractive. So kind of almost backtracking a little bit, when you look at industries to take a, a serial approach to with entrepreneurs, we've mentioned a few factors that make it interesting. The fragmentation of that industry competition being kind of case by case in terms of if it's a deal breaker or not. What are some other factors that you weigh when looking at interesting industries? Yeah. And I'd say some of these apply to consolidations and non-consolidations, but revenue quality is obviously very important. And we think about that as percentage of total recurring revenue. And for the revenue that is recurring, how does that behave year to year? How sticky is it? How high is your retention? So the, the higher quality revenue, the better Obviously, you want to be in non non cyclical, low capital intensive industries, specifically in consolidation. Having low capex just helps you redeploy that cash flow into into new acquisitions, as opposed to having it tied up in capital. You know, having reasonable multiples in an industry. You know, again, most of the time there is opportunity at the smaller size companies with multiples, but there are industries where. You know, there, there's large strategic or financial buyers that will pay high multiples at the very small end. So, so being in industries where there is opportunity at the lower end, you know, obviously, obviously matters as well. But, you know, I do think it's easy to dismiss industries to, to Jay's point, And he brought up HVAC and dental is, is too, but there's others out there where it's easy to say, oh, there's, that's, that industries, it's already over. There's too many consolidators or there's one 800 pound gorilla. 
there's always, you know, our experience is there's always more opportunities than you think. And you really have to study the targets and the dynamics of the industry before writing it off because it's easy to be anecdotal about that. And, and I would just add one more thing, Alex, as we look at both industries and also you know, entrepreneurs to partner with, we are trying to solve for long time horizons. And so, you know, that requires a pretty large industry, making sure there's enough runway over a long period of time, but also a CEO who shares that view and appreciates the power of compounding over long periods of time. Yeah, building on that further, what kind of characteristics do you look for in entrepreneurs that would be fit for this? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's just sort of speaking the language, honestly. Like, what have they read and studied and in and, and someone who can you know, really voice the benefits of a 20-year hold versus a five-year hold. If you do the math around having capital, you know, the, the sort of buy-sell versus hold, and you've got all sorts of friction in the buy-sell example, you know, that just leads to a really unbelievable difference in 20 years about total capital. People who can speak to that and understand it and really value that. And it, it's it's really... I think Jason will agree. It's, I mean, it, it's very crystal clear, honestly, when someone understands that and when they don't. You can just tell. And so, and so in addition to all the other things that you might look for in, in an ETA context, Alex, you know, like obviously smarts, but, but most, most of the people pursuing this are smart enough. There's this, it's, it's smarts plus like the EQ component that I think is really important because you're working with small businesses, particularly early, and it's just so critical to, to be able to relate to all sorts of people, all sorts of employees and suppliers and various constituents that you might deal with. So, so we, we really focus a lot on that and, and people who've quote unquote drunk the Kool-Aid on, on these long-term hold benefits. Yeah. And they have to want to be operational. So, you know, you can certainly be more of a, you can be a CEO and be, you know, the culture driver and the capital allocator if you go down the road of, of wanting to build a consolidation or a hold co, but you, you can't do it without being super operational along the way in the early days and working with, working with the teams and these small businesses and getting involved in the issues with the owners. So, you know, if somebody just wants to go out and do deals, this is probably not the path because I, I think you have to, you know, want to be part of that operational experience. Doesn't mean you have to be sucked into the operations every single day. But certainly in the early days, that's a really important component, you know, is to, to get operational, to be there with the teams, to build out those, those processes early on is, is really important. One other aspect to these long-term acquisition strategies is pacing. And you kind of alluded to it earlier with Vector where acquisitions were initially slow, but as the team developed and scale started to, you know, reap its benefits, you could increase pacing over time. Is that a pretty common theme or across other entrepreneurs that you've worked with, invested in, or studied? And that, and that pacing kind of is a growth curve over the years. How, do, how does pacing kind of factor into all these? Yeah, definitely matter. And see if you agree with this, Jay. I mean, I think the pattern I see emerging is, you know, certainly if an entrepreneur is starting smaller, it may be that they might do a few early but then there's a pause and it's like a few because you're getting enough, you know, to Jay's point, yes, you do have to build EBITDA because you can't build a team unless you have, you have cash flow to do that. So a trend that I kind of see is, and, and you may even use all equity for those first few deals. Maybe you don't have enough EBITDA to bring in debt early on, but then there's a pause and it's absorb, bring, bring together what you've built, start, start building that team, start thinking about, you know, debt and lenders for the next few acquisitions as, as part of the capital. But there is that 24-month, maybe sometimes 30-month period where you're absorbing, digesting the first few deals, getting the house in order to then move move again. I do think our pace was very spread out and nonlinear. I think we're seeing entrepreneurs build through consolidation now faster than we did. And I think that's okay with all the components that we've mentioned in place. So we probably could have moved faster in hindsight. But I think having that pause and getting the house in order early is really, really important. And having those pieces there, having that definition of enterprise control that we talked about before. And you also mentioned it too with 
equity being perhaps a stronger source of capital early on. How does source of capital shift over time? You mentioned kind of a, a flywheel point that's hit where internal cash flow and debt can largely finance deals from a certain point onward. Can you, can you kind of walk through how that, that source shifts over time? Yeah, I can take that. I see you smiling. The way that we think about this is we try to get the flywheel as quickly and responsibly as possible. And that doesn't mean that you overlever or take risks with the business. But at the same time, some of these businesses, even though they're small, they're highly recurring, relatively low churn. There's not a lot of capital intensity so that they can support leverage in a responsible way. And so we try to get to that point very quickly. And so what, what I would say is it generally starts out where you might do a, a deal. You know, if it's on the smaller end, you might, as Jason said, you might do all equity. If it's maybe a little bit above that, you might bring in some third-party lender. The end goal, Alex, I think, is a capital structure where you have some combination of senior and MES. So you might have some senior that's you know traditional term loan, amortizing, and you have in conjunction with that MES, which is you know a little more expensive, but also friendlier and lower amort. An alternative to that end goal would be a Unitronch type product where it basically synthesizes what I just described. And that's all Unitronch is doing. So if that's the end goal, then you have to kind of work from the early days to that. And what we've done a lot in our own investing in conjunction with entrepreneurs is bringing in one of those lenders early, having them grow with you. And then at some point, you then bring in the other. We started with MES sometimes, and we started with senior. I think both can work. I'm not sure there's a perfect answer. It's probably situational. But, but as a sidebar, I don't know there has to be a perfect answer. So like, I see sometimes CEOs will model the leverage out, and they're, like, they're worried about the last sort of 10 basis points on the interest rate. And our advice to them is that you're, you're thinking about the wrong stuff. Like You need a good partner. And don't worry about a, a, a hundred basis points here or there on an interest rate. Think about the covenants. Think about whether they're going to behave in tough times, whether they're good partners, easy to work with, and are there to support you. And that's what really matters. And so I don't think it, again, I don't think it is critical whether you start with MES or senior, every situation is going to be a little bit different, but that's usually the path is one or the other. Then you, then you bring in the other one. And, and over time, you kind of ramp from sort of two and a half to three turns of leverage up to four, four and a half over time. And of course, if you get really much bigger, then you can you can go above that. But that's the path that we see. And, and of course, you're using cash flow from operations as well to support acquisition activity. And you mentioned time horizon. We've kind of mentioned time horizon throughout this episode so far. I would love to hear your thoughts around long-term holding companies and perhaps why you think that they've become so much more popular in recent years. And there's so many more kind of variations of a long-term holding company being created today that perhaps it's my own perception, but it just seems like it's becoming much, much more popular over the last handful of years. Yeah, it's definitely been a buzzword in the last 36 months or maybe more than that. The idea of hold co and long-term hold, holding company building through consolidation, you know, again, in the context of entrepreneurship through acquisition and in search funds. And, you know, I, I think what we've seen is one, there's no standard model. So, you know, there's, there's everything from entrepreneurs saying, Hey, I kind of, I want to build a private equity firm and I just want to start small. And there's others saying, I want to do a search fund, but I want to build through acquisition. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that's in between. And I think what what we see most common these days is a you know a structure with a set amount of equity can be investor groups can be varied, but you know we've been pretty active in some of these through a, a partnership called Compounding Labs in, in partnership with Will Thorndike and Kent Weaver, who many folks who listen to your podcast would know. And it's really about you have a committed essentially a committed pool of capital that is really set to get the platform to flywheel. And that equity can be drawn at various stages of the consolidation strategy over the first you know, four years, let's say, as you're layering in debt use over time, and then eventually you don't need any, you don't need any new equity. But you know, generally there's there is an investor group, there's a board in place, there's governance around how that capital can be used. So it's not a blind pool like a private equity firm would be, but it's a you know, it's a very collaborative 
group of investors working with entrepreneurs to to build something over a long period of time. And you know, there's usually not a time limit on on that. It's usually set up as a company and with the idea that it could be a 30 year a 30 year project. You know, the reality is this is all really new. So there's there's only a couple years of of these things happening and probably not all of them will make it 25 years. Some will sell over time for the right reasons. But I think the idea, you know, we see entrepreneurs doing this and investors coming around it is really about, hey, let's think about structure. Let's build this like we're going to have it for for 20 years. And, you know, it's okay. Because of that, you know, you can start small. You can think about building team differently. So they are unique structures, I would say, and something that we hadn't really seen before, but is becoming much more common. But that, that's what we're seeing. But I, I do think there's there's lots of different ideas and, and structures going on as as all forms of entrepreneurship through acquisition are growing and continue to grow. Yeah, I, I would just add one more thing to that. And I, I think one of the reasons people are interested in these holding company structures is it I think it better strikes a balance between sort of investor capital allocator and operator than maybe a traditional private equity role would or simply being a search fund CEO would. It's kind of a way to strike that balance. And I think that's appealing to a lot of people. And the other thing I would say is I do think people more and more are appreciating the benefits of long holding periods. And you even see that in the private equity world. I think scores poorly on that dimension, but there's continuation funds and, and things like that that are taking advantage of, of longer holding periods, which I think is great. I think entrepreneurs are realizing that. The challenge is that in the traditional ETA model, there are often points along the curve where the incentives just don't align with that. And it's, and it's perfectly natural and, and okay. And we, in fact, live some of those incentives and part of what we're doing at Compounding Labs is trying to address some of those. So, it, you know, we kind of build it into a structure where it really does align everyone and, and we think addresses some of those incentives that cause businesses to be sold too early. I think one thing that's interesting about long-term holds that I would love to hear your thoughts on is how do you, as an entrepreneur, know that this is going to be what you're excited to work on in 10 and 20 years? Because the idea is that these could be run indefinitely, perhaps for the rest of that entrepreneur's career. But I mean, in high school, I wanted to be an ROTC Air Force pilot. And today I work for a media business and have a small one on the side. It seems really hard to predict what you're going to be interested in, what's going to motivate you, you, and what's going to be exciting to you a decade or two down the road, where... That seems to be where the traditional search model is a nice fit for most folks because it provides kind of an embedded career transition at some point. So you know that if this is something you don't like doing or maybe you'd rather do something else, there's an embedded transition point for you to kind of make that fork in the road. So when you're talking with entrepreneurs or coaching them, how do you kind of suss out whether whether they know this is what they truly want to work on for you know several decades perhaps? I think it's a great question, Alex, and I think there's some distinctions I would make because it's it's one thing to say, you know, I'm interested in the HVAC industry right now, but I don't know if I'm going to have the same passion around that 12 years from now. I think that's a different question than I think I want to go run a business, but I'm not sure I want to do that forever. And so, in in the holding companies that we're involved with, for the most part, I think the entrepreneurs are pretty convinced that, for lack of a better phrase, like capital allocation is something they want to do. And, and they're like sold on that. Which maybe that changes, okay? But, I, but I, don't, I don't think so. Like they're convinced that that's what they want to do. How they employ that desire can change. So maybe they start off in dental or HVAC or whatever. That doesn't mean that's where they have to end up. And I think that's why it's important for them, I think, to have good partners because it does heighten the bar when you're talking about a multi-decade partnership. You better be sure you have the right people in the boat with you. And I don't think, you know, at least how we think about it, we think it's natural to have those transitions in your own career desires and, you know, just industry in general, things change and you have to be able to pivot. But most of the people we partner with are convinced that they, they want to do some form of capital allocation for their career and that therefore they're comfortable 
with this kind of structure that's really driven to, to the multi-decade time horizon. I agree with that. And I'd just add, like, it's not for everybody. So I think there's some people that want to do different things, don't see themselves building a business for 20 or 30 years, and that's okay. And others that are really drawn to that and, and want to want to do that. And I think these these hold codes are a great a great way to do it. But again, I'll just say I, I think the reality is not every if you take every form of hold co that's that's been put together in the last, you know, the last five years or so, not all of them will be in the same form for 25 years. They may be sold. Somebody may decide they want to move on and they built a great team and there's a great succession in play. So it's not as though you're committing the rest of your life. Although I think to Jay's point, the entrepreneurs we see doing this really do have that passion to, to allocate and build something and, and build something big. And when you're open to doing something for a really long period of time, the assumptions you have to make to get to something really big, it's not crazy. So it's, it's really just a function of time and making good decisions year after year. And, and I think you can get there. And, and I think there's a lot of people that are really driven to that, like Jay said. Do you have a strong sense for where these long-term hold codes become or how they shift over time based on some of the results or outcomes that we've seen so far with some of hold codes, which some of which have been extraordinarily successful? I'd be I'd be curious if if you think certain results or outcomes are going to influence the direction for hold codes going forward. Well, a little counterintuitively, Alex, I actually think the success in the traditional ETA model is in and of itself support for some of the whole coast structures. And that may sound odd, but if you, and Will himself has done some work on, on this in the, in the search fund industry, if you, if you just look at the businesses in the ETA world that have sold and what happens to them over the next decade, the story is pretty compelling. It's really good things. The next owner makes money. The next owner after that makes money. And so then you start asking yourself, well, what if we had owned the business for 15 years instead of five years? And so I think that's part of what has driven the investor community to be more open to these hold structures is because they see what these search entrepreneurs build these wonderful businesses in five years and then sell them. I was like, why are we doing that? Let's own them for longer. And the hold co allows for that. And so it's not, so in my opinion, it's, I'm sort of being picky about your question. It's not just the success of the hold co's that are driving it, but it's the success of all forms of ETA, I think, that suggest, hey, wouldn't we all be better off if we own these great businesses for longer periods of time? Yeah. And I'll just step back. It's fun. It's fun to think about ETA and you could take every, form of ETA, whether it's a search fund, a self-funded search, a hold co, accelerator, you know, ETA within a PE firm, like take it all and add it all together. And I'm not even going to speculate what that is because you could define that. But you're talking 500 million to a billion dollars of, of equity a year, maybe getting put into that across, certainly across the US, maybe it's more if you look at globally. But you know, that feels like a lot of dollars when you think about search funds in the 90s and early 2000s. But in the whole scheme of privately held companies, like that is nothing. Like, you know, ETA and search, it, like we are in the first and second innings, like what it will all become, you know, I think there's going to be continued innovation and evolution of, of the models. But, you know, we're still early and it's a very small piece of the private equity market. So, you know, I often get questions from, you know, people considering search or doing something in entrepreneurship through acquisition. And it, it feels like a bubble. It's grown so much. But I think we just have so much more to go. And we're still in the early days of, of seeing where, where all this goes, I think. How do holding companies from an investor and board member perspective shift your role compared to investing in a traditional search fund? Yeah, I would say two things, Alex. One is you, you certainly have to be comfortable with the time horizon. I, you know, we've beat that horse, I know, now throughout our conversation. But, you know, not all investors have the same time horizon. And so I think as you enter these, it's just important to really, really buy into that. It, it's, it's funny. We're, 
we're good friends with Trish Higgins at Chinmark, and we've laughed with her about this. But you know, you talk to investors and you you kind of talk about how you're long term focused, and th- this is like in the context of raising money, you know, for for people who try to do that. And you say you're long term, and the the investor says, "Well, we're long term too. You know, we have pretty permanent capital." And then and then you eventually get to the point where they say, "Okay, well." Okay, but how? Like, when will we get liquidity? And you know, that's the sign that that's, that's someone that probably doesn't buy into it. But but you have to be prepared, I think, to have your capital tied up in it for a long time. And not everyone has that viewpoint. So so that's one thing I would say. The second thing is, all I think all boards are a commitment, obviously, and a big lift, particularly early with an inexperienced CEO when you're mentoring them and bringing them up the learning curve. But I think when in serial acquisition strategies, you know, you you very viably might get to a point where you're doing six, eight, ten deals a year, and I do think for the board that is a bigger lift than maybe an average sort of business that's growing organically or or you know, isn't doing that amount of M and A, because that's a that's a lot of material process and and board calls, et cetera, a lot of financings happening. So that's the other thing I would say is it, it does seem like and it seems like it's a pretty big board commitment for these serial acquisition strategies. Well, I was just going to say, regardless of form of ETA, if, if an entrepreneur is going down a consolidation path, an investor is looking at investing in a consolidation strategy, it's just so important to have people around the table, both investors and board members who have consolidation experience and you know have seen have multiple reps and pattern recognition around it because it's, you know, it is different than a purely organic strategy. So I just double click on that. That's probably an obvious statement, but certainly something we look for. And, you know, luckily now, you know, I think this is consolidation is more common. I think when we did our consolidation, you know, even a decade ago, there was, there was less of this happening in in the ATA world, I think it's more common now. So there's more people around that that have experience doing this, which I think bodes well for others that are looking to do entrepreneurs looking to do this. Yeah, certainly. Shifting to closing questions, what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? Yeah, it's maybe more personal for me, but <laughs> my wife and I were in the same boat. But we were always like nurture versus nature people, and now after you know having having had four kids and feeling like we kind of did the same thing with each of them and they grew up in the same house, but they're all very different. I think we fallen on the, the nature, nature being, of course, nurture is extremely important, but I think nature rules when it comes to nature versus nurture. That's such an interesting one. I have three kids myself and it is amazing how different all three of them are. I mean, it's just, it's like same parents, same, same home. It's crazy. I'm going to sort of cheat a little bit, but there are things that I've certainly gotten more passionate about over time. It's kind of the reverse of your question. But one is just that I think our world has gotten so transactional over the last couple of decades, just over time in general. And now more than ever, I believe that just working with people you want to work with has so much value to it. And we try to do that and you know, entrepreneurs we work with and and back to that service provider conversation i mean we've been really loyal to the to the folks that we have worked with since the beginning of our careers and they they've deserved that but we just wouldn't trade it for anything and and it's a little bit romantic maybe but i think you can still be successful in business and have that view of the world and that's certainly how we try to approach things and you get to work with me every day jay that's right exactly exactly Exactly. Yeah. Best perk. What's the best business you've ever seen? Yeah, I'll I'll say more of us. We've seen a lot. We've we've been lucky to you know we haven't got to invest in all of them, but we've we've been able to see some really impressive businesses that have been built by some peers of ours and others we've invested in. But you know, I think the sector that that I've seen that's the most interesting is is vertical market software. So if it was you know the railroads in the eighteen hundreds and cable television in the 80s. You know, we've been lucky enough to invest in some really interesting vertical market niche software businesses. And we're super... Uh, having revenue quality is just really important to us and the companies we invest in. And those companies are just phenomenal. And there's so many of them out there. And it's just an exciting... Everyone's using technology as a mission-critical resource to their business. And 
that in my view, that industry is one of the better types of businesses that we're going to see for the next generation. Yeah, I can't argue that, obviously, Alex. The one I would add, just like sort of pre that, records management was hard to beat. And it happened to work really well in a serial acquisition strategy for a lot of reasons. Yeah, there's a great Archives One Harvard case study that's out there that we can we can link to. That's that's phenomenal. AJ is a pretty savvy CEO uh, and an investor as well. Well, I would love to chat more, but we need we need to close. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and sharing about long term investing and roll ups and a thousand things in between. It's been a lot of fun. So thank you for sharing some time. Yeah, thanks for having us. Been been fun. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. 